Faith Matters Podcast. I'm your host, John Morgan. This is the podcast for Multi-Faith Matters, and I am the host, John Moorhead, and I'm privileged today to have as my co-host, Charles Randall Paul, who has also been here in the past as a guest. He is the uh, president and founder of the Foundation for Religious Diplomacy. We have two special guests today who will be uh, helping us understand aspects of the current conflict between Russia and Ukraine. And uh, we are privileged to have very busy schedules, so we want to get right to it, but I want to introduce them and read a little bit of their bios. And I'm hoping I got a little bit of coaching ahead of time for name pronunciation here. So I'm hoping I get it correct. First of all, we have Paul Gavriliuk. I hope I was close with that. He holds the Aquinas Chair in Theology and Philosophy at the Theology Department of the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota. He was born in Kiev, Ukraine. He studied physics at Moscow Institute of Physics and Technology in Russia. And uh, he is very busy these days raising funds. And uh, we want to mention both at the beginning and at the end, you could find information in the podcast notes for his nonprofit, Rebuild Ukraine. And we're encouraging everybody to support that. He's also founding president of the International Orthodox Theological Association. And again, look in the program notes for more bio and links. We are also privileged to have Cyril Hoveron. Uh, He is professor of ecclesiology, international relations, and ecumenism at St. Ignatius and professor at Stockholm School of Theology. And he's taught theology at a number of confessional and public institutions, including theological academies in Kiev, Moscow, Minsk, and elsewhere. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, again, normally I uh, uh, take the lead in being the host, but I'm going to admit my uh, my ignorance. Uh, I do have a colleague, uh, Father Brendan Pelfrey, who's Eastern Orthodox, and we've had some conversations over the years, but I have much to learn about the Orthodox tradition, and I will turn over the remainder of uh, the lead of our, our questions and conversation to my colleague, Charles Randall Paul. Thanks, John. I'm, I'm grateful that uh, we have this little conversation today. It's incredibly important uh, for, I think, all of us to understand, at least in, in our audience, we have a large evangelical and, and broader audience than that, uh, how uh, Orthodoxy, Eastern Orthodoxy, has developed in its relationship to Russian Orthodoxy and how that relationship might be ultimately a source for both conflict and collaboration in uh, ending the current conflict in the Ukraine. That is kind of the, the, the context for this conversation. And I'll start right out by saying most people are probably familiar with the, the, uh, the great schism that occurred between Roman and uh, Eastern Orthodoxy. And uh, I won't go there. I'd like you to th- let us know um, within Eastern Orthodoxy, as it has developed, how does the question of authority uh, guide your church? How did you develop, in other words, not a single Pope, but various different uh, leaderships? Could you give us a little both ecclesiastical history and then I'll ask some theological questions. Whom do you want to talk? Either one of you, just go ahead. Okay, good. Uh, Maybe I'll try to explain briefly. Uh, Indeed, the structure of the Eastern Christianity is different from the structure of the the Western churches, primarily the Catholic Church. Uh, Even though, yes, uh, well, some institutions uh, of the Western Christianity originate from the East, like the Institute of Popes. Probably uh, uh, not many people know that originally the popes emerged in the East, in Alexandria, 
and later on uh, the Bishop of Rome adopted this title. Um, and um, for during the first millennium, we um, actually constituted one single community. We were in, com in complete communion with one another in the Christian East and the Christian West. Then our uh, ways parted, parted somehow. And the basic uh, difference between the two families uh, of the churches, like if you take the Catholic Church and the Eastern Christian churches, is that um, the Eastern Christian churches look like, more like a commonwealth of independent or autocephalous churches. Uh, it's, I think I would uh, uh, kind of uh, compare it with the, with the Anglican communion, uh, the, the commonwealth of the Anglican churches, which essentially the provinces of the Anglican church are independent autocephalous. And they have uh, a, a primate who somehow coordinates their, their, their activities, uh, like the Archbishop of Canterbury. In our case, it's more like the ecumenical patriarch or the patriarch, the Bishop of uh, Constantinople, who resides in what is now Istanbul. Um, uh, so instead, well, instead of one pyramid, so to say, of the ecclesial structures in the, in the Catholic Church, we have several pyramids, like, you know, in the Valley of Kings in Egypt, that stand next to each other, and they each has its own kind of self-sufficiency, they're independent, autocephalous, and they are in full communion with one another. And the relationship between them is uh, described most uh, best by, by what we call consent. So it's a consensual uh, relationship between the churches. There is no kind of obligation that the churches need to you know, to hear, uh, to, to follow the line set by the ecumenical patriarchy, they, they choose to, to follow or choose not to follow this line. So it's, yeah, it's a consensual relationship between the churches and it's uh, really like, yeah, so it's a consensual relationship and it's more like a commonwealth of the churches. No, I, I, I agree with I agree with everything uh, that Father Cyril said. I think the crucial uh, matter uh, for, for, for our time is the fact that because you have several self-governing churches, these churches very often within the nation states uh, are dependent on the governments uh, in which they function. So Serbians, for example, and Serbia, Romanians and Romania, and certainly that's the case today for the uh, Patriarch of Moscow, who is thoroughly dependent on, on the ruler uh, of, 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 of the Russian state, Vladimir Putin. How many pyramids are there? Just for, for, the, for the ignorant populace, how, can you tell us? 15, how many, 15. How many, 15, 15. And in terms of size, which ones are the largest? Well, the Russian church is believed to be the largest one indeed. Uh, and um, uh, but actually, for for us, the size doesn't matter. Even though you know, uh, even though the Russian Church promotes itself as the largest church, but there is a, this idea that every church matters regardless of its size. It's like in the international law, modern international law, that it, it doesn't matter what what size is the state. All all states have equal rights. So we have approximately the same perception about the churches. Yes, and of course, Ukraine has a very substantial number of Orthodox believers, and if its churches were to unify, the Ukrainian church would have the second largest size, followed closely followed by Romania and then Greece. That's a good answer. Thank you. Um, let's talk now about uh, theology. Um, within the, the Protestant world, of course, there are schisms on top of schisms. There are literally thousands of of uh, Protestant uh, denominations. That's a great word that uh, was developed basically in the USA to try to say, well, are they churches or what are they? Well, they're denominations, right? That is a concept that's been developed here. Um, and there are very different theological views in all of those denominations. What would you say the theological differences are between the pyramids, if any? No, I would say that there is no, there is no difference basically between uh, between the pyramids, and we believe that we share the same faith. And moreover, we, we believe that we belong to the same church, one church, and we believe that this church is actually the, the church established by Jesus Christ. Um, and um, what we differ in are essentially the administrative structures. So those pyramids are not more than just administrative structures uh, that help managing, you know, the the kind of groups of people. Who believe to be to belong to the same church, share the same faith, participate in the same mysteries. Um, of course, we have our disagreements. We have kind of different expressions of our faith, 
in terms of language, in terms of theological language, if you want, uh, traditions. Um, uh, but yeah, I would I would say no. There is there is a, a consistent coherency between the uh, the theological traditions um, uh, shared by those pyramids, and there are some emerging. Well, there are some differences that can be quite crucial, like in the case of of the Ukrainian war, uh, the difference. Uh, is not of theological nature. It's more of, of ideological nature. And that's something that needs to be addressed by the, by the theologians. We believe that uh, what led, what has led uh, to the war is a distortion of the tradition, a kind of aberration of the tradition under the influence of the ideological concepts. And one of them is the, the, the notorious Russian world concept. Probably we'll talk more, uh, talk more about it. But that is basically the difference. We have some churches uh, adopt um, kind of ideological frames, which sometimes alienate them from the rest of the churches, as, as it is the case with the Russian church, I believe. Paul, do you want to say anything more about that? No, I think Cyril said it all. I think the faith is the same, but then there are some very, very, uh, the, the things that matter and the things that divide us precisely have to do with the ideology, and it's the ideology of the so-called Russian world, Oruski Mir. And it's an ideology that sees, sees itself uh, as in opposition to the West, which it treats monolithically and in which it, for example, very often ignores the evangelicals and ignores the extent to which America, um, broadly speaking, is, is certainly still a religious country. Yes, I, if, I I may, if I may add to this, uh, another sure, kind of point of, I, of I, differentiation I, that we experience in the Orthodox world, which is very well known in the evangelical world, is the, the, those uh, notorious culture wars uh, that ravage uh, the U.S. terrain, um, the society and the churches in the United States. I think we recently, related, recently adopted the same kind of uh, dichotomization, polarization within the Orthodox world, so that there are like conservatives and liberals within the Orthodox Church that don't really stomach each other very much. And if you take the, the, the war in Ukraine nowadays, it, it, it is to a great extent underpinned by a sort of culture war when the Russian church promotes, you know, the traditional values and, you know, the conservative uh, kind of uh, preferences uh, for, uh, for itself and counterposes itself, the Russian church, to some other church. Like they, they believe that the ecumenical patriarchate is liberal, is, you know, is on the liberal side of the culture war, uh, wars. And uh, uh, this is a sort of dangerous imported division, I would say, that uh, contributes to this differentiation within the otherwise uh, monolith, uh, monolithic and, and singular orthodoxy. That's very important for our audience to understand. So we'll dwell on that a little bit longer. I would say most Americans think it's, uh, you know, Russia versus the Ukraine, two nation states that are completely uh, uh, opposed um, for some political reasons. And Americans don't like to think about religion really being uh, deeply involved in the conflict. So I, I think we need to, to emphasize what you both just brought up by going back in a little bit in, in history and the idea of, of Kiev originally being kind of the third Rome, that there being something special about that, that form of orthodoxy that would lead out and almost in a messianic way, uh, bring peace and uh, truth to the entire world where the Western church had failed to do that. And certainly where enlightenment culture was failing to do that. So. It, that is, a, as I read history, this is a very, very old idea that has been brought forward now, as you say, as part of the culture wars and um, revivified by the Russians uh, right now to, to use it contra Ukraine, which has sold out, its religious peoples have sold out to Western values, right? And therefore there's a heretical uh, aspect to this that, uh, they're not fighting other Christians, they're fighting heretical Christians, right? And that is a deeply um, historical reality in the United States. I, uh, I might have mentioned to both of you in my email, before the Civil War, 10 years before the Civil War, when both when we saw that it was coming, there was a schism effectively between the, all the Protestant groups. You had Southern Baptists separating from Northern Baptists because at some deep level, they knew they were going to be fighting each other. And you don't fight a brother, but you can fight a heretic. 
right? And so I think, I, am I right to uh, be analyzing things a little bit like that right now? Yes, but these categories, these categories actually don't apply because what I want to emphasize is there is actually a shared faith. The important thing is the extent to which everything that Russian state is presently doing in the Russian church is actually spin and hypocrisy. And let me give you specific examples. Ukraine is a much more religious country, especially especially when you drift to the Polish West, you will find that religious adherence is is 10 percent or higher. Uh, and significantly high in the villages. And this is primarily, of course, Greek Catholics, but also Orthodox and, and the substantial Protestant presence. Whereas the more you drift to the, to the center of the country and the more you drift to the east, religious adherence actually goes down. And of course, in the so-called republics of Donetsk, et cetera, it's about 2% of the population as it is in the rest of Russia. So any kind of notion, we can, we can dream of these dreams of the third Rome, which of course was applied to Moscow, not quite to Kiev. And we can dream of these dreams of the second Jerusalem, but it's a question of how does one activate a particular ideological stance in this, situ- in this situation. And so it's one thing to think of some, some sort of unity between various Orthodox. It's quite different to simply to, to institute a genocide which is actually going on right now and the war and the war against the weak and the war against civilian and children. So I think there, there's really, there's some fundamental differences of that, of that order. Another significant element here is that Putin himself privately is not a religious man. Uh, it's not clear in fact, if he believes in any God at all. Now, and that's unfortunate and a lot of inf- our Western interlocutors are sort of duped by seeing pictures of him in the church, et cetera. He is not a version of Ivan the Terrible. He is not a version of Stalin in the sense that Stalin was uh, really an orthodox deconvert. In other words, he, uh, you know, at some point he uh, he lapsed from the faith. Putin has never had the faith, but he uses the faith as a convenient ideology. And perhaps Father Cyril could also comment on what that ideology is and just weigh in on, on, on the whole on the whole issue. But the important thing here is fundamentally, as far as the fundamentals of faith are concerned, they are basically shared by Russians and Ukrainians. And that is what makes this particular war really Keynes, Keynes attack against Abel. And, and that is what makes it fratricidal. And it's, uh, it's, it's, it's an aggression of, of one, of one nation against the other. There's no, there's no second sight here. And frankly, the world recognizes this with the exception of very, a very small minority. Okay, go into Cyril, you've been uh, yeah. called to, the, to, to testify about the ideology. Help us understand this idea. Well, yes, thank you. Well, exactly. I believe that uh, what we are dealing with in Ukraine is a sort of uh, conflict between two, uh, between, between two attitudes to Christianity. One is the Christianity as an identity, and another is Christianity as faith. And what we are dealing in the case of Russia is, is to a great extent Christianity as, as an identity, what they call the sociologists of religion call the cultural Christianity. When people, you know, identify this, themselves with the church without really believing in God, you know, um, if you ask, you know, uh, an average Russian, like 70, 80 percent, according to different polls, they would say we are Orthodox Christians. And if you ask them, do they believe in God, most of them would say no, or they don't have you know, an idea. Uh, what God is. Uh, so it's a cultural Christianity. And for them, exactly, this ideology of the Russian world has been constructed. It was constructed, I believe, by the church in order to attract those people who emerged from the Soviet atheism uh, and to bring them back to the church. And their, their kind of design, well, kind of the, the mechanism uh, constructed for this uh, purpose. I think it was the purpose of ev- re-evangelization of the Russian people uh, behind this ideology of the Russian world. The purpose was exactly to construct a thing which is similar to the communist ideology, but that, that would ex- uh, you know, attract people from, uh, from atheism back to the church. Uh, it, it, it succeeded to some extent because it created this kind of identity or cultural Christianity when people uh, kind of identify themselves without behaving or belonging uh, to the church, really. And um, uh, what uh, what they have is, a, is essentially a quasi-religious ideology, which looks like a religion, but it's not. And essentially, it's it's uh, it's a sort of it's a modification of the Soviet ideology, or if you want, of imperial ideology, because it's a mixture, a very postmodern mixture of you know of the elements from the Tsarist Russia before the revolution, then the communist regime, Stalinism, and um, uh, and post-Soviet situation, like the kind of very primitive occultic 
you know, dualistic Manichaean approaches that Putin particularly embodies, I believe. And this is a very strange mixture of different religious elements that usually kind of don't feed each other in, in the organic setting, but in the, this uh, ideology, uh, they come together, they constitute this strange uh, uh, complex uh, uh, kind of um, mixture of, of ideological elements, and they believe that this is orthodoxy. And in the name of this orthodoxy, they come and fight people who are in Ukraine and who are, well, most of them would, would be, you know, naturally orthodox. They, they didn't emerge from the Soviet situation. Many Ukrainians uh, were occupied, you know, the territories occupied by Stalin after the, the, the harshest religious purges in the 19, uh, early 1920s, early 1930s. And uh, we are talking about a kind of a rural, very normal kind of Christianity of the most Ukrainian people who now face, you know, this aggression from Russia. So essentially, as I said, we are dealing with a clash of the cultural Christianity, the Christianity as an identity or Christianity as an ideology against just kind of normal Christianity, I would say. And so in evangelical terms, in evangelical terms, the insistence, the centrality of faith is completely lost in this equation. In other words, a religion is perceived precisely simply as a part of one's cultural identity. And that is why, and that is one of the main reasons why it could be weaponized, because there is actually no personal connection with Christ, with Jesus Christ. There is no centrality of what Christ, and that is why you turn to idols, including specifically the idol of war. Another comparison that I would use is that Russian Orthodoxy is experiencing its 9-11 moment. And what I mean by this specifically is that in the very same manner in which we thought about 9-11 as a profound distortion of Islam, in other words, Islam was weaponized in specifically as an instrument of terrorism. In this particular situation, Russian Orthodoxy is being weaponized. And unfortunately, that includes the higher-ups. That's to say it includes Putin himself, and it includes Patriarch Kirill, who are doing the weaponization. It's weaponized in the service of essentially aggression and war. And uh, I think that perhaps the only distinction with Islam is that none of the major leaders of Islam would have ever expressed themselves publicly as supporting something like a 9-11 attack on, on the United States. Whereas in our situation, you do have the primate, the head of the Church of Moscow effectively endorsing it, which is why if this war is lost and it's likely to be lost by Russia, both Putin and Kirill will be morally and politically dead. Um, help me, I, I work on, uh, you, got, you, you gentlemen are extremely eloquent, by the way. Thank you for those direct uh, answers. I would like to uh, have you now do a, an exercise that we do at the Foundation for Religious Diplomacy um, in order to help people understand um, what would you say, speak in the voice of Patriarch Kirill? How would he be speaking as a Christian to Russian people? What you have, you've talked about it as ideology, but I want you to speak as if you're a Russian Orthodox Patriarch. What is he, he's obviously speaking religious language and religious um, symbols in order to accomplish this. So what is he saying to the Russian people? So he's very concretely, he's not been keeping silent from the beginning of the war. Unlike some of his underlings, he has not kept silent. And so the Orthodox enter the period of Lent, which is this, if you will, you could compare it to a kind of a renewal, if you will, in the evangelical tradition or recommitment to Christ in the evangelical tradition. So he's entered this period of Lent with the so-called Forgiveness Sunday, in which he said, Ukrainians have a lot to ask forgiveness for before Russia. And he, in fact, forgives them. So that was one statement that he was making as the Russian bombs were being dropped on peaceful Ukrainian cities, as people were dying in the hundreds, as actually children were being slaughtered. This is what a Russian patriarch said. Uh, excuse, me, he Paul, said excuse me, Paul. Yes. What did he say they needed to be forgiven of? Well, it was, of course, perceived grievances against the Russian speakers. Father Cyril and I are both Russian-speaking Ukrainians. Father Cyril, of course, is thoroughly bilingual. I am primarily a Russian-speaking Ukrainian. And just as Hitler cited the grievances of the Germans against the Czechs when he invaded Czechoslovakia, Putin cited completely, completely um, 
non-existent grievances of the Russian-speaking population of Ukraine against the Ukrainian-speaking population. Now, which population is he bombing now primarily? He's bombing, Paul, you've all Paul, heard. Paul, just, I, I, yeah. since you're going to be leaving early, I'm going to press you on this. What did, what did Patriarch Cyril, talking as out of a voice, what were his Christian words that defended or, or accused or needed forgiveness? I know President Putin's words, and I know yes. his motives. I'm, I'm very curious how the Russian Orthodox leadership is making this a religious aspect. What, what words are he using? What, is, the, what, the specific, sin, what sins are being committed? Sins, right? Uh, yes. By, what, what's he saying? The specific words that were used were twofold. First of all, Russia is fighting a war of light against darkness, and it's a metaphysical war. And the principal reason for that war is the existence of gay parades. He dropped the, uh, the word pride, but it's the gay pride parades that somehow are causing the Russian missiles to be flying uh, all over Ukraine. Now, the fact of the matter is, the fact of the matter is that generally speaking, Eastern Europeans are not keen on politicizing the whole business of uh, of gender. Um, and and in Ukraine itself, yes, it's a free country. And in that regard, certain expression of these things is allowed. But generally speaking, neither the Orthodox Church nor the population at large is particularly welcoming shall we say, all the new developments having to do with the gender politics in the West. So he's actually, it, it's, it's just complete nonsense. And it's nonsense for Western consumption, uh, for the consumption, again, of people who would actually take this seriously. But I'd rather, I think Father Cyril would probably have far more profound things to say on the matter. Yeah, I would say that um, uh, for now, during the entire tenure as the Patriarch, Patriarch Kirill indeed addressed the Russian people and indoctrinated, I would say, the Russian people with this doctrine of the Russian world. He believed that it is an evangelical, an evangelizing, not evangelical in the kind of, in the sense uh, of a denomination, denomination, but evangelizing instrument for the Russian people that emerged from the atheist um, kind of propaganda. And... Uh, but lastly, I would say- what did, the, By the way, what do you mean by Russian world? Yeah, the Russian world, I tried to explain in the beginning, it's just this, this uh, uh, mixture of different ideologies, elements of different ideologies, like the monarchical Tsarist ideology, then the Soviet Stalinist ideology, then the post-Soviet ideologies. It's really a kind of a mixture of different elements. Uh, I, I call it usually, I call, call it like uh, civilizational nationalism. It's, it's, it's a sort of exceptionism when they say we, the Russians, are, uh, we have a unique mission by, given to us by God to save this world from itself. Um, and uh, we, that's why we are eligible to use any means to, you know, to, to fulfill this mission. The that's main yeah. The main claim, the main claim is that Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine occupy "quote unquote" the same spiritual space, and 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 then the subtext of this is also is that Belarus and Ukraine do not, and its people do not exist as distinct nations. That somehow they distinct as one part of the Russian nation. So I mean, in it is a chauvinistic, it is a chauvinistic proposition, and it is also very arbitrarily selective. Because of the in the nineteenth century, there was this idea of Slavophile—that is to say, some kind of spiritual unification of all Slavs. Well, then notice, of course, it excludes completely the Slavs that happen to be, for example, Catholics, such as Poles, let's say, or Czechs, etc. So it's a very it's a very pick and choose type of position, and it serves only one purpose, and it's precisely the purpose that Father Cyril articulated: it's this reconstitution of the Russian Empire of the 19th century with the Soviet sort of spin or backing or some kind of Soviet Union nostalgia. Because remember, Putin said, uh, uh, and Putin has repeatedly said that he treats the uh, dissolution of the Soviet Union and the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. I think our listeners can all think of greater catastrophes in the 20th century than the dissolution of the Soviet Union, but that is Putin's vision. That is his fundamental, that's what's driving him. Yeah. And I would add to that also that it's not just about, you know, the Russian uh, civilization. Actually, this vision behind the Russian world is really cosmic. And uh, my argument is that uh, the Putin's kind of worldview is to a great extent dualistic Manichaean. He sees the world in, in black and white, divided into, you know, uh, essentially ontologically good uh, uh, pieces. And... Um, and uh, and essential ontologically bad parts of the world, and for him, of course, Russia is the, the is the quintessentially 
goodness of this world and the rest of the world, the West, and particularly the United States, is the incarnation of the global evil. Uh, this is kind of a sort of a worldview that he's ha he has, and he shares this worldview, I think, with many figures in the church, I believe, in, including Patrick Kirill, to, right, to, to a great extent. And that is also the message. You ask about the message of, you know, Patrick Kirill. Uh, it is a dualistic message. It's a message that exactly polarizes uh, the world between us and them. And for him, us is the Russians, and them is the rest of the world, particularly the Americans. Yeah, I, I think what Americans need to hear in this conversation, what you, you two just very well articulated, which is most Americans were raised to think of Russians as atheists, you know, uh, you know, and now, now the story is God. We are part of this cosmic righteousness that we will save the world through Russian, the true Russian way of, of Christianity. And, and that, Russian nukes, and yeah. Russian nukes. That is well, another course, way to Of course, of course. And I'm saying that, that, you know, Cyril would say this, uh, uh, Patriarch Cyril would probably say this. And if, if, um, if Americans could understand that, they would ironically find within their own history, this idea of a righteous, exceptional nation that has been millenarily called to save the world. It went originally from Christianity to democracy, right? But there, and so we have to see kind of an, a strange analogy where democracy has been leveled, uh, risen, risen to the level of a religion in America, exactly. and and how the Russians are doing a, a counter. You know, Randall. You know, Randall. Uh, I I believe from the perspective at least of our tradition, Orthodox tradition, this is heresy. This heresy was condemned as Gnosticism as early as in the third century. So, and it's very old thing. And we, we face this kind of thinking for centuries and still we cannot overcome it and still we face it. That's why we want to, you know, to deal with the Russian world as a sort of deviation of the Orthodox tradition doctrine. It's not just, it's not the genuine expression of Orthodox as many people would probably believe. They would say, oh, those, you know, crazy Orthodox, they just fight because they're Orthodox. No, the fight happens because this is the deviation from the Orthodox, from the tradition that, that we firmly hold. Yes, well, I, I, I really, I, I certainly, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. It's a profound, it truly is a profound distortion of the faith. And I think we certainly are very concerned about the way in which orthodoxy today is being used or rather misused by, by the Russian state, by the Russian government. Of course, there are other uses of orthodoxy that are much more peaceful in terms of humanitarian aid and support that's being provided by, you know, major charities, such as, for example, International Orthodox Christian Charity that was, of course, organized in the United States. And I think what, 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 what this kind what, what violence has, has evoked in so many people in, in hundreds of thousands and millions is actually a desire to do something and to alleviate the suffering that's going on and the enormous humanitarian problem that's going on. So if we could, if we could talk a, a little bit about that, I would, you know, I think that'd be helpful. Let's go to that subject. We'll start with, I remember some of our audience uh, doesn't know anything about orthodoxy and uh, might even consider it heresy. Um, and so give us some help here. What are the theological foundations for peace building among people that deeply disagree about the ultimate truth. About, um, in other words, in a pluralistic world of atheists and Muslims and, and Taoists um, and various forms of Christian, what tools, what, what theological tools come out of orthodoxy that says, this is how we ought to behave in a world where there's such div division over what is the ultimate good? So, so I think first, first and foremost, this negotiation of pluralistic world is something that orthodoxy is only just now entering in a kind of a mature fashion. Uh, the resources, of course, for dealing with this question are quite considerable, including specifically liturgical resources. So uh, the da daily cycle of orthodox services mentions in prayer the word peace 15 times. That might indicate an anxiety precisely over the question of peace that the uh, ancient Byzantine Empire had, because, of course, it was attacked on all sides, uh, you know, Arabs, Slavs, what have you. But I think, I think the liturgical setting in which peace is the fundamental, shall we say, attitude that one has to have towards God, and peace ultimately is something that is God-given. 
I think that's actually a deep connection between, let's say, orthodoxy and evangelicals. And I think an element that peace needs to be found within, that it cannot be simply found exclusively by policymaking, as important as policymaking is, I think is another element that would connect the orthodox piety with, with, with evangelicals. You know, in terms of peace bringing, uh, I think... Generally speaking, of course, orthodoxy should not be endorsing a war in, over invasion. And yet that is precisely what the present war is. And certainly Russian orthodoxy endorses it. And then all most groups, 99% of all religious groups within Ukraine, of course, have spoken very, very strongly against the war. So there is a sense in which at least there is a kind of an outcry, really, to the world at large. And Cyril is participating in this uh, uh, Cyril Hovarun is participating in that collective outcry in a very powerful manner. Uh, I think that's going on. So, uh, so maybe Cyril, you, you could probably add to. Well, actually, no, I completely agree. Well, the thing is that indeed, even though we have a lot of resources in our patristical liturgical traditions in the past, and if you just you know collect uh, quotes from the fathers and mothers of the church on the peace, you, it, it will go volumes, really. The thing is how to apply this volume to our, our, our days. And that is kind of the challenge for, for this generation. I believe this is a major task for, the, for this generation of, of public theologians in the Orthodox Church to do some, something that the Western theologians did after the World War II, because the World War II was, also, it was not just the collapse of the, you know, the ideologies of communism and Nazism. It was not just the collapse of Germany and, the, you know, and Italy, whatever, the, the allies. It was also the collapse of a sort of theology that developed, had developed in the 30s. That theology underpinned very much you know, fascism and Nazism. And then, then there was a, a huge work of deconstruction of this totalitarian theology that existed in the decades before that. It's something that we, we need to do. We haven't done this in the Orthodox tradition. And that's the kind of the most imminent task, I think, for us as, as the Orthodox theologians. Of the there, there will have to be a kind of a come to Jesus moment for the Russian church and, and its leadership, because uh, out of 40,000 uh, minor clergy, 40,000, only 300 spoke exactly. publicly, only 300, which is, that's what, 0.75 of 1%. And again, these, this is an important and laudable uh, expression, of course, of anti-war spirit. But where, where, what I want to ask is, where are the rest? Where are the rest 99%? Some are silent, some are complacent, and some even actively endorse Patriarch Kirill's position on the matter. So I think, uh, Paul, to answer your question directly, there is a fundamental failure, as far as Russian Orthodoxy is concerned, to articulate precisely a vision of peace, really Christ-given vision of peace. As far as other Orthodox uh, um, heads of the churches are concerned, um, most of them have spoken quite strongly, of course, against the war and have issued very, very strong statements. Given our system and given the fact that we do not have any kind of central governance or a papal figure at the top, unfortunately, their voices are presently not being heard. That said, I think God certainly puts into the hearts of Orthodox, be it Romanians, be it, uh, 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 you know, be, be it Orthodox of all persuasions, essentially to work for peace and to alleviate suffering. So I would think that the kind of theology in action that we now have is a theology that basically tells everybody who is concerned about this horrendous war, when you wake up, do something about it. And if, if there is, if, if you can fight with peaceful means, uh, what would those, what would those be? And I think therefore, lots of us are doing humanitarian work, organizing various things. I am uh, um, in charge of something called Rebuild Ukraine, and you can find us on, on the web. Uh, what we're pro uh, providing uh, at the moment specifically as a kind of a peacekeeping operation as humanitarian aid, we're providing uh, medical supplies and specifically tourniquets. And these are devices that are designed to stop blood. And we are also setting up a telemedical uh, sort of um, infrastructure that would allow people to order um, prescription drugs remotely because in two weeks, there will be more people dying out of the prescription drug shortage problem in Ukraine than there actually will be dying in battle or from shrapnel. So that's a key, that's a key logistical element that I believe uh, this particular organization will be set up to do. And thankfully, thankfully, 
we're getting considerable interest and support from the United States and not just from fellow Orthodox, from everybody, uh, really from everybody, uh, from the United States to set this up in the quickest manner possible. Of course, we're, we're acting in a very, very tight schedule as you can imagine, uh, because the war unfortunately doesn't wait. The war is just happening now and the infrastructure of the cities is being destroyed now. And I think if you have, if, if, if the listeners, for example, have a charity that they trust, a charity that has already proven itself as doing the good work, uh, if they could simply join in that charitable activity, I think this will do a lot of good for more than 3 million refugees that Poland and many other European countries are also trying to, uh, to now accept. We, we've also set up a program in Lithuania for Ukrainian children to come and study at prep schools, and we will be uh, setting up study abroad programs in the United States, including Ellen Academy in Bryan, Texas, that will be one, just one of our partners. So again, this is a way in which people of goodwill and also religiously affiliated institutions can, can really contribute to this process of peace building, returning to the notion of peace. We'll uh, be sure to let the listeners know again at the end of this, in a few more minutes, uh, how they can participate there. Thank you, Paul. Uh, Cyril, I'm going to push in on one of the things you mentioned, and I'll go a little farther. I'm always intrigued about, about what's on the edge of theology when you mentioned that all uh, Eastern Orthodoxy is dealing with the problem of pluralism. Um, can you, on a, on, this is the way we often uh, uh, frame this, a proselytizing church is a church that believes in the essential truth that it has and non-arrogantly, without arrogance, but with great sincerity, tries to convert others to that higher way. Yeah. In, a, in a pluralistic world where there are competitions between uh, these different views of what is the highest way, uh, what is the edgy or what is the new view in orthodoxy that is allowing the coexistence of both proselytizing and dialogue, if you will, between those. Yeah, yeah. I think I think your your question hits uh, the, the kind of the core, uh, if you want, of, of, of the situation, and indeed it, it it has to do to a great extent with uh, with the perception of pluralism and the attitude of pluralism. The Russian society is certainly not pluralistic, and it's 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 increasingly monolithic and uh, um, uh, chasing out you know pluralism, and that is the paradox, by the way. On the one hand, you know the Russian church and the Russian people in the kind of in the Russian uh, uh, leadership. Uh, they kind of uh, court uh, the religious groups, groups outside Russia, like the evangelicals in the United States, or the Catholics, for example, um, and uh, uh, you know try to develop some kind of relationships with them. At the same time, they persecute severely uh, the same Protestant evangelical Christians or the Catholics in Russia. And that is unimaginable. Why? Well, they, they do it exactly because they, they, they believe in their complete monopoly on the Russian scene. And if you start, you know, persecuting pluralism, you, you never end up somewhere. You never stop. And that's how, yes, they started persecuting, you know, the, the witnesses of Jehovah, for example, they have criminalized yeah. the witnesses of Jehovah in Russia. Now they, you know, they um, purge. Uh, and a closed down like evangelical Baptist communities in Russia or the Catholic communities, they stop Catholic charities in Russia. And now they, they don't stop there. They go as far as, you know, to accusing other Orthodox of not being Orthodox enough, like the Ecumenical Patriarchate or other churches. They now invaded Africa. They started a new kind of uh, mission in Africa. Uh, it means that they, you cannot stop if you start, you know, uh, uh, pursuing monopoly, if you start, you know, persecuting pluralism. And I believe it's it's really, uh, we need as, as Orthodox, we really need to learn how to combine our belief that we hold truth. We do believe, I do believe that I, my church holds truth. Uh, that is a part of being Orthodox. Uh, at the same time, I fully respect, you know, the opinions of other uh, Christian brothers and sisters. That's some, something we, we need to learn. And, uh, the reaction to pluralism explains also the, the Russian world because the Russian world 
in, in addition of being you no know, ideology, whatever, uh, excuse me for using this term, but it is also a fundamentalistic uh, 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 kind of doctrine. I know it's uh, the, there are kind of different interpretations what is fundamentalist, but if if we take the scholar scholarly kind of classical academic uh, definition of fundamentalism, it's about it's a reaction essentially against the modernization and secularization and pluralization of the society. In this, from this perspective, the Russian world is fundamentalistic because it doesn't tolerate pluralism, and it has to learn pluralism in order to, to become something different, something more peace, uh, uh, peaceable. I think, are you, would you also agree that this tendency, um, for example, it exists in my religious tradition. I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and we are the only true church, you understand. And, and yet we've somehow been able to try, and we're working through this right now. We're working through this pluralism problem of being honestly believing uh, as a, I would guess, even a Greek Orthodox or, 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 you know, whatever your Orthodox, you really believe that's the superior way. Um, and dealing with that honestly in the world is something that we're all grappling with, I think. Um, and uh, I just want to say that I'm glad uh, the leadership is aware of this tension because it's, uh, it's, funda it's fundamental. It actually is a psychological reality that affects politics, it affects a lot of other things. Uh, and we, we've found in our work, um, it's a contamination model, a public health model. It, it's as if uh, the, the wrong view or the, or the off view or the perverted view is contaminating the world. And how do you handle contamination, right? Well, how do you inoculate people? Um, that's a more passive way. At certain times you have to quarantine them right? You set apart from them. And, yeah. and I see right now that the, the Russian Orthodox Church is saying, well, it's gotten so bad, we have to eliminate them. Exactly. And, so, and there's, this, there's this aspect that uh, is deep. And I, I really- Exactly. And, and I just want to, to, to throw a very short comment, comment as well. Like if you take the difference between the Russian situation and the Ukrainian situation, as, as it was said, Ukraine is a predominantly Orthodox country, the majority uh, identify themselves as Orthodox and do practice Orthodox kind of Christianity. At the same time, it's intrinsically uh, an intrinsically pluralistic society, very much, probably because it was always on the edge, you know, between the worlds. And the very name Ukraine means the borderland. That, that is the translation of the name of the country. And uh, we learned our ways of pluralism, toleration towards others. We still hold our truths, you know, Catholics, Orthodox, or Evangelicals in Ukraine, but we live in peace with one another. We lived in peace until the invasion happened. That's a sort of peace that, that is one of the, of those things that differentiate the Ukrainian folks, if you want, and the Russian folks. It's not doctrine, it's not faith. It's the attitude to the other. That is the basic difference. Thank you for that. I, I, we're almost out of your time and you gentlemen have given us a great deal of it. Uh, John has a way of ending these conversations with a question that uh, is very open-ended. What question should we have asked you? What question do you wish we had brought to the table? If each of you would uh, speak to the unasked question that you'd like to speak to now, uh, you have your final few minutes, go for it. What would you like to tell people? What, what do you think um, people ought to know more about uh, orthodoxy or about the current situation? Uh, just what's on your heart and mind right now that you'd like to say? I think probably the most important element is that there are plenty of Protestant communities today in Ukraine that are acutely suffering. There are, for example, pastors who have not left their congregations, deliberately stayed. Uh, there have been a few programs that were actually made on this. And I think uh, if uh, the churches that you, our listeners are a part of have informal relationships with these churches in Ukraine, because Protestants are uh, much stronger in Ukraine than in Russia. As Father Cyril mentioned, there has been, in fact, a repression of uh, Protestant groups in Russia. I'm connected, for example, to wonderful a wonderful Methodist seminary in Moscow. They've certainly had a hard time for a long time. We don't even know whether they would be able to function in the future. But the present, the present situation is such that there is a humanitarian catastrophe of untold proportions going on in Ukraine. And therefore, uh, if your listeners could use their 
resources and their connections and also their government connections to pressure our government to do more sanctions wise and in terms of military aid i think that would be that would be very much appreciated again i am a part uh, of a nonprofit called rebuild ukraine uh, and you can find us online at rebuild-ua.org uh, you will see what we're doing and i think i've described already that we are focusing primarily on medical supplies. We also actually do evacuate, we also do emergency evacuation. So people could certainly contact me uh, in the particular cases where a family needs to be evacuated either from a war zone or from an area that's simply unsafe. And we have safe houses uh, in the Western part of the country. Uh, and also we have the capacity to to move people to move people outside of the country if 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 they so desire, so that's that's my message. Thank you, Paul. Yeah, well, I would completely endorse. I would completely, yeah, I would completely endorse uh, uh, Paul's appeal. Uh, it's it's time for to to show to to show you know deeds mm -hmm. not words. It's time for action, and I believe this is also an ecumenical opportunity if, if we want. It's not just about you know discussing uh, outdated theological ideas. Uh, it's about common action, and I believe that through the common action, we could we could get closer to each other, much closer than through the theological conversations. So it's kairos uh, for for the action. Let us show action. All right, that's uh, you're you're quoting Saint James, who says, you know, show me your works to prove your faith, right? <laughs> and I might I might add that with a with my favorite. Uh, 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 Orthodox voice, a Russian voice, Dostoevsky, in his great book, The Brothers Karamazov, said to, uh, had, uh, had Father Zosima remind the lady who was talking about how she could love universally the world, he said, well, you can love the person down the street. Active love, active love is the only love that counts. And so I think both of you are making an appeal for active love. John, you have the last word. Uh, well, thanks to everyone for being here. My, uh, my hope is, and I'm sure you all share this, that we have uh, a positive and speedy resolution to the, this unfortunate war, this invasion. And I, I also hope I have one of the things that I have experienced through this in, in self-criticism is uh, a greater awareness of the failures of the church in the West to, uh, to work with uh, and act as if we, we are one body in Christ with the church in the East. And uh, my hope is that there can be some positive uh, outcomes in that. I wanna thank uh, Randy for leading as uh, co-host. I, I did a lot of good listening here and uh, thank you, Randy. I also wanna thank our guests, Paul and Cyril. Please look in the program notes for their biographies for some links to where you can find their work. And especially we want to draw attention again to Rebuild Ukraine. There will be a link there. Uh, please uh, make a financial contribution to that and to other charities as they are seeking in this uh, moment to help the people of Ukraine. Again, gentlemen, thank you for being a part of the podcast. Take care. God bless you both.